Anthony, how you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, so why crypto? Like, it's like really uncommon for people working in traditional finance uh, to display like such a positive attitude towards DeFi and crypto broadly. So. So I think that's a pretty big question. I guess I disagree a bit with the premise. I've talked to a bunch of people. It seems the flow from TradFi into crypto is sort of, there's a substantial amount of people, it seems, in DeFi nowadays who have like quite some TradFi background, right? I think people are in it for a bunch of different reasons, right? You're ambitious, you kind of want to move fast, faster than maybe sort of your institution lets you move, right? That's one reason to get into things, right? Maybe you're in a place which is not like um, the best kind of firm or something, right? I think the barriers to entry are crypto are lower, right? Um, so I think that there's a bunch of reasons why people are moving. As for me, um, how I got into this was like I met some people working on DeFi um, actually in 2019. I made the stupid decision of then ignoring crypto for like one and a half years after that, right? But I think what struck me really was like just the quality of people in this space I think is really, really high. And sort of it's like the smartest people I've met in like anywhere, any sort of social setting I've been are in crypto pretty much. I think the reason for that is basically, um, so that's reason one, I would say. The reason for that, I think, is that there's so low entry barriers and it's so easy. It's relatively easy in crypto if you're like smart and ambitious to like build something to like scale up really fast, right? So I guess reason one why I kind of like the space just like sort of to hang out in is like I like hanging around smart people and I think the smartest people are in this space, basically. I think like the other reason is really like, I'm not sure if all this stuff is necessarily in the long run good for the world. But I think like, I like studying crypto because while it may not be good, I think it's inevitable. I think it's like almost inevitable that in sort of the near future, crypto is gonna play a pretty big role in the financial system of at least uh, some parts of the world. And I think that's sort of, there's a lot of bad things potentially that this can do to the world. But I think like, look, it's inevitable. A lot of people in TradFi Academia are not, I think, paying it enough attention given the fact that it, I think, is inevitably gonna be fairly big. My view is, and so I figure, like, hey, somebody should go ahead and try and, like, with a kind of objective sense, um, not like let's steal all these shit coins, but with a kind of objective, like, what is really going on here? Kind of look at the space. So those are like some of the reasons why I like hanging out in the space, thinking about it, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's like really polarizing because you see people that display their opinions online, and they either love it or they hate it. So no one's like ever really sitting in the middle. Um, but one thing I want to touch on is that you said that you don't necessarily think it's going to help in the long run or like change the world in the long run in a positive way and why do you think that yes yeah, so i'm very much in the middle i think like technology sort of has like complicated effects on things in the world right like sort of things that you would think are good aren't necessarily good things that you would think are terrible aren't necessarily bad right i think technology is inherently a complex thing so just to go on like a bit of a tangent i guess just to give two like silly examples right social media is probably something that the first time we saw it we thought it was probably a pretty great thing for the Right. And then sort of if you believe basically that social media is contributing to politics, polarizing and so on and so forth. Right. There are also negatives to that. Nuclear weapons seem like a terrible thing for the world. Right. But then the game theory basically says, like, we stop getting into giant wars once we get developed the technology to sort of destroy each other upon a click of a button. Right. So I think technology inherently has like complicated effects on what happens in the world. I think crypto is kind of similar. Right. Like. On the one hand, basically, there's a kind of freedom aspect, right, of basically, like, it becomes much harder with crypto for governments to really regulate financial markets. Financial markets become more internationalized. Barriers to entry become lower. If you want to issue stocks instead of, like, filing a million forms with the SEC, you could just, like, print a token and then sort of write some smart contract code that directs cash flows to the token, right? Um, so, sort of, but even these, are these good things, right? So on the one hand, like there's the ability, like naively a sort of very purist, like market fundamentalist view says like, yeah, markets are more complete, entry barriers are lower, stuff must be better, right? But sort of realistically, like in financial markets, right, whether deregulation and like more market has been good for the world is not entirely clear. On the one hand, we have like a large booming internationalized financial market, and it looks like sort of markets are more complete. On the other hand, cycles are more synchronized, even in TradFi, right? Sort of crashes are bigger, right? People are able to take on more leverage, so on and so forth, right? So then sort of purely from the market completeness angle, it's not entirely clear that letting people trade more stuff, letting people issue more stuff isn't necessarily good for the world. Look at what crypto has sort of done so far, right? Like you have crazy amounts of innovation. You have like very cool, innovative financial products all directed, this entire space of DeFi, directed at helping people who are like YOLO levered Bitcoin, YOLO lever it more, right? 
And it's like, have we really contributed much to the world? And I think sort of it's complicated in that sense. And like I said, I study it because I find it interesting rather than because I think this is necessarily a good thing for the world. I study it also with the mindset that I think like technology is some good it can do for the world. I think that sort of in some long run, the technology that's developed to let people YOLO lever shitcoins, right, is actually going to help, hopefully one day, people do like useful risk transfers, right, which I think is the purpose of the financial system. But at least looking at DeFi today, I think we should all be slightly disappointed in the ratio of like useful risk transfers we're doing versus YOLO levering shitcoins, basically. So that's kind of like right now I view in like a bit of a, yeah. Yep. So I'd probably liken that to like social media where it's got like all these benefits. Um, but then like you see all these like negative externalities of like social media and that's what we kind of associate. And I'd imagine that's kind of similar to how you're looking at crypto and DeFi right now. Yeah, I mean, um, pretty much. I mean, I guess like the way I view my job as an academic, right, is like they call us the dismal science, right? And I think they call us that for the reason, you know, like you could like do the kind of academics where you study stuff that's like good, right? And sort of that study is maybe like half of the world, right? And like, I think that social scientists and, well, I mean, like, I guess social scientists, like, our job is to study stuff that has a large absolute value impact on the world, right? We look at what we study, we study crashes, we study war, we study basically, like, policy failures, market failures, stuff like that, right? Sort of, if crypto becomes big enough to do a lot of damage to the world, that alone justifies spending a lot of brain share on it, right? Like the view that this is bad and therefore I'm going to ignore it as a social scientist, I think, is that's not the way we generally look at things, right? And so I think that sort of, if you evaluate things on the basis of let's try and measure the absolute value impact that something is going to have on the world, that's going to lead us to deciding whether we can study it. Then the question you should really ask is not whether crypto is good, it's whether it will be important. People differ in their views on that also. I think my view is I'm beginning to think that this is not going away in the short run. It's going to play a pretty big role in the near future in many places. And so that really justifies. Yeah, so that's kind of where I am. It's really like it's worth studying because it makes a large impact in absolute value, whether positive or negative. You know. Yeah. Well, like you think it's going to make this this impact. Um, so do you see like DeFi in particular? Do you see it as like running as a parallel kind of um, like industry or do you see it like becoming tightly integrated with the traditional financial system over the long term essentially so i have a relatively sharp thesis on this that i sketched out in an essay that i posted on substack so then my, my my thesis basically is that the nature of DeFi is that it's largely i think a substitute for the traditional financial system so what i mean by that is like i actually subscribe to the hypothesis that anything you can do on a blockchain you can do without a blockchain and you can do it better and faster basically or at least you can do without a decentralized blockchain another way to say this is anything that you want to run on ethereum you can run it on solana it's going to be cheaper and faster right and so this i think leads me to believe basically that there really is no reason or there is not too much of a reason i have a caveat to that but there's not too much of a reason for DeFi to exist in developed in developed countries where basically you can write financial contracts you can do leverage you can do collateralized lending and it's not too expensive and too troublesome it kind of is troublesome to do that in the us and in many other countries because regulation and sort of like chokes the financial system and you have a lot of legacy infrastructure but if the legacy stuff caught up it would really not be so um difficult to do that stuff right now, my thesis is where this stuff actually has value is in developing countries, on the other hand, sort of, you cannot write as complicated financial contracts. And that's because the state capacity to enforce contracts people write is a lot more limited in developing countries. There are countries in the world where basically if you write, I'm going to borrow a million dollars or like $100,000 against my farm, right? Nobody is going to enforce that contract in a fair and objective manner. Right. And sort of in my article, I basically emphasize that sort of why did finance develop in developed countries? Why did finance develop in the US, the UK, um, Hong Kong, sort of places like this? Right. My thesis is basically like finance fundamentally is the trading of promises, the trading of claims and sort of promises to pay you in future states of the world. You can only trade promises to the extent that you have an infrastructure to enforce promises. And so my thesis is basically that finance TradFi is built upon systems for relatively fair and objective promise enforcement. 
DeFi is a substitute for this. It is a promise enforcement mechanism that's built based on computers, based on Solidity, based on Ethereum miners, circumventing the need for using courts to enforce promises. And then so my thesis basically says that sort of, there is no real point in having EVM and having sort of miners enforce promises when the courts do a reasonably good job of enforcing promises. A large role that the US government plays in the enforcement of promises. So if EVM is like taking their, their, their job, they're likely to actually push back against this, right? So my thesis is basically we're going to have a bifurcation where sort of in developed countries, courts are going to continue doing finance. Maybe Solana is going to get some market share where basically some of these promises are enforced on BC chains or rather centralized chains. Like these guys will push against the development of decentralized promise enforcement machines because these are fundamentally pushing against and threatening to sort of take over a large part of what makes developed world governments have their power. And then on the other hand, you'll see the parallel development of DeFi and an alternative promise enforcement mechanism in developing countries where basically the states are not powerful enough to enforce promises, but conversely also not powerful enough to efficiently push against this alternative promise enforcement system. So that was a bit long, but basically sort of the argument I sketch out in my blog post, like basically says, we're going to see a bifurcation. That's my take. Yeah. Of course, it's not yeah. to predict the future, but that's my take. Yeah. Like, so you can codify like certain promises, like through smart contracts, but it's likely to, that you're able to codify all of them. And even if you could, we're very, very far away from a future where you can do that. So like the most relevant example is like DAO to DAO business. So like, um, like if you can't put a business agreement on a smart contract, there needs to be a legal system to, you know, in, like make a promise to enforce that contract. And so the problem is that, you know, these DAOs are kind of international. And so if you have like a DAO in South America and you have a DAO in Africa, um, like good luck trying to enforce a legal contract in that scenario. So that's like why we haven't so seen so many like DAO to DAO, like business interactions and that kind of, that kind of hampers growth in the space when, you know, these big projects cannot do business with each other. And so like what is lacking to bring business forward that doesn't rely on the traditional legal system, essentially? So I think that's a super good question. Um, I haven't thought very much about this, but let me just uh, go to the spitballs and answers to that. I guess I disagree a bit that this is per se not happening. Like, for example, sort of DAO's projects have merged and they've done so relatively successfully, right? What was it? The Tribe and Drari or whatever merged. Right? Yeah. Um, there have been instances of mergers, right? So there would be one example of a fairly sophisticated, um, fairly sophisticated apparatus for basically like DAO to DAO business, which went through successfully, right? And I think sort of that's done. Um, DAOs also do business with each other in offering sort of effectively um, financial contracts, like special financial contracts to each other, right? Like lines of credit to each other, swap windows, stuff like that. Frax has a bunch of these AMO deals with other protocols. Um, for example, Maker has its, uh, I think, sort of special windows. I'm not sure if Maker does this. Well, Maker USDC, right? But if you look at these, right, this is doubted out business, right? And sort of like DAOs are able to negotiate with each other. DAOs are able to sort of effectively come to agreements to exchange services with each other, whether for pay or for not, or not, right? Sort of like fairly complex agreements, right? And I think flipping your question on its head, it is kind of magical that these entities that don't exist in any legal jurisdiction, these entities that exist like by virtue of like token voting and by virtue of basically sort of this construct that exists as a kind of business not tethered to any government, right? They're able to do business with each other, right? There's things that they can't do that well yet, but the amount of stuff that they're able to do, I think is like quite surprising already at this point, no? Yeah. 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 I think like sort of flipping like your question a bit on, like taking the other view of your question, what can't you do, right? Like, I guess like contracting on basically sort of say this DAO writes a piece of code for this other DAO and gets paid for it, right? or this DAO supplies like maybe real world services to this other DAO and gets paid for it. I mean, if you touch the real world too much, right? Like that stuff is the stuff that crypto finds hard to deal with. DAOs, I guess, can't really deal with it either. So, I mean, it's not like sort of we magically solved everything, but I guess like sort of, I hadn't thought about this before, but as you mentioned, I think as a framing of the problem, DAO B2B space, right? I feel like it's already bigger. It's already like moderately big, I feel. And sort of, it seems like a space with a lot of room to expand. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, it just feels like 
not that there isn't doubted our stuff, but nowhere near to the extent where businesses uh, like in the traditional like non blockchain space basically can um, go into agreements with each other. So that's kind of it feels very immature the types of business that's been doing. Um, so uh, just shifting for so like I know you've been really interested in uh, DeFi. Like what what has interest you the interested you the most whether it's a certain protocol or a certain primitives that have come out of uh, DeFi? Uh, that's a complicated question i kind of float around the space and try and just like absorb stuff and keep up um i don't think i have a favorite i guess like stuff that i spend most time thinking about i don't have much papers but i always like thinking about amms the kind of math underlying amms it's just like actually fairly close to some stuff we work on in economics so then sort of um that's the thing that i spent some time thinking of um recently just today actually as i was writing up notes for a class i'm teaching in the fall um, I was looking into basically yield farming and sort of evolution of uh, yield farming from uh, some of the early kind of incentivization, sushi swap, empire attack, uh, to the curve convex model, and then to eventually Olympus. And like, sort of that, I, I hadn't spent that much time on that before, but like, just as an evolution of like people figuring out various tricks to like print shitcoins and hand them to users and sort of use that to incentivize usage, like, that's been pretty interesting to follow. So I guess like that occupies like some of my brain space recently. Yeah, but I just like think it's a cool space to kind of follow along. Just there's so much innovation, like crazy stuff going on. Like when Olympus and the forks were hot, I was like, this is like, it is insane that these guys figured out like such a, well, something that got so much product market fit. And then I'll crash to the ground, but I think like sort of, it was a very clever piece of protocol engineering. So, I mean, like, I don't really have a great answer. Like, I hang around and I think a lot of the stuff around here is, like, pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, since uh, AMAs have become popularized by projects like Uniswap, they've become, like, fairly common and widespread within DeFi. So, like, every every DeFi ecosystem kind of has a bunch of AMMs. Um, so, you've written about, you've written a, a paper on nested AMMs. Uh, can you explain the difference between, uh, like, a typical AMM, a constant function AMM, such as Uniswap? So nested AMMs are, are just a constant function AMM. Um, they're a special kind of constant function AMM. So the problem nested AMMs are trying to solve is basically how do you generalize a constant function AMM if you want to trade more than two assets against each other? So when is this potentially useful? Um, if you want to trade, say, Ethereum against a stablecoin, right? That's two assets. You want to trade Ethereum, Bitcoin, and stablecoin. Suppose you wanted to do that, three assets, not too hard, right? What if you wanted to trade like all fixed expiration futures, right? With expirations like May, June, July, so on and so forth, right? What if you want to trade options at different strikes, right? So you want to trade Ethereum options at like 100, 101, 102, so on, so on, so on, so on, right? Then you want basically an AMM, which has like a lot of different assets. You could have an AMM, which is like, you're just like, forget it. I'm just going to have pairwise AMM. So I'm trading basically um, the 100 strike against USDC and the 101 strike against USDC and so on and so forth, right? Why is this not ideal? Because like really you want your AMM to be cognizant of the interlinkages, the correlations between the assets, right? Because a 100 strike option and a 101 strike option are like pretty close to the same thing, right? So you might want your AMM to do something, which is like you when the AMM buys a bit of the 100 strike option, it quotes a lower price for the 101 strike option because it wants to sell a bit because these are kind of similar things, right? So the motive for having a bunch of different assets in a pool is if you have derivatives, right? Or other assets where basically like there's a bunch of very similar assets that are slightly different, but very correlated. You want a way to trade them all in one pool so that the prices of these assets can kind of be sensitive to each other. Yeah. And then, so if you do the naive way to do it, right? You could have X, Y equals K. You can have X, Y, Z equals K. You can have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on equals K, right? The problem with this is it treats all the assets are symmetric, right? And then if you if you work at the math, what you realize is basically that you don't have the property that when you in this in this AMM, right? When you buy a bit of the sort of 100 strike option, right? Sort of the protocol can't distinguish between the 101 strike option and USDC, which is a very silly thing to do in some sense, right? So it kind of like raises the price of this option relative to everything else. So you want basically a language to be able to tell the AMM to treat this bucket of assets as kind of correlated to each other and then not correlated or less correlated with this other bucket of assets, right? So the yeah. trick is basically to use this sort of function nesting trick, right? 
which is that I have a functional form where you can specify nests of assets. All the assets within one nest are correlated with each other, and when you trade them, they're like substitutes for each other. You get a lot of this, you lower the price of everything else. But things across nests are less substitutes. So basically, sort of, you put USDC in a separate nest, and then everything in this nest trades against USDC um, in a different way that they trade with each other, basically. And so the point of the nested AMM is basically to, an attempt or one proposed solution to solve this problem of what if you want to trade buckets of assets. Everything in a bucket is kind of similar to each other. Everything outside the bucket or in a different bucket or nest is like less correlated with it. So that's kind of what that AMM is designed to solve. Yeah, so they have to be like somewhat similar, the types of assets in the, in the nested AMMs. That's what that's designed to solve, yeah. Okay, yeah. So in terms of improving AMMs and just improving stuff in general, are there any types of assets or primitives or just uh, services in general in DeFi that you think are kind of missing that would bring a lot of practical value to the space? I think that I have like things that I'm interested in and I have an overall view. And the things I'm interested in, I definitely think there are interesting things. The overall view is a bit more pessimistic. Things I'm interested in, there are some well-known problems with classic AMMs. And by now everyone knows the issues, right? And then you might list them as basically... Um, impermanent loss, front running, and then there's this more subtle issue of you might call like the inability to do large trades without price impact. And then so I guess going from the third one, or maybe a fourth one, which is like volatility exposures um, and sort of the equilibrium being sensitive to volatility and fee volume. Maybe I'll talk about the last two because I'm like more confident there exist solutions to the last two. So I think like Suppose two people are willing to make a trade of a large amount of an asset at a given price, right? Um, an AMM doesn't let you do that. Because the thing is, like, if I buy a bunch from an AMM, I'm going to push the price up. Then you sell to the AMM, you're going to push the price down. If you sell first, you're going to get a better deal, right? So the AMM sort of fails to do this thing where it allows two people to come to agreement to trade at the fixed price, which is the market price at the moment, right? Classic markets solve this with basically what we call, TradFi markets solve this with workup mechanisms or matching mechanisms, right? So then there becomes an impetus for, is it possible to design uh, AMM-based dark pool or matching mechanism, right? Which is basically a mechanism which reads off the AMM price and match makes based on that price. Um, I have heard some people are working on this. I'm not sure where exactly that went. The other thing I think is interesting is basically, can you make an AMM sensitive to vol oracle? So the basic idea is that sort of, when volatility is high, people are going to withdraw liquidity from AMMs because impermanent loss is higher, and then volume might not be high enough to make up for that, right? So an interesting question is, can you make the AMM kind of do that on your behalf? So can you kind of make the AMM just like adjust the curvature of the function so that you kind of are auto-compensated for changes in volatility? Because you can just call volatility oracle. Right? There's various feeds where you can get volatility from. You can get it from, uh, sort of, in principle, you can get it from like Uniswap, Oracle problems um, notwithstanding. In principle, you can get it from options, so on and so forth. Right? So whether you can adjust AMM functions to um, account for this, that would be another potential area. I'm like less bullish on the attempts to like solve impermanent loss or front running. I just think like as far as I understand, I know there are efforts attempting to solve these problems. This, I think, is like perpetual motion, basically. I think the intrinsic design of AMMs is you have impermanent loss. I think that's sort of, I don't see, I haven't seen anything which is anywhere close to compelling and we've solved impermanent loss. I think like sort of, I was slightly happy when I saw the Bancard thing blow up, uh, sort of in vindication of this hypothesis that nah, that doesn't actually work. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the overall more pessimistic view I have is Though it's like, I feel like AMMs are very much in, like in philosophy of science, there's like the Kuhnian kind of view of like, there's like paradigm shifts where you like 10x or 100x, then there's like normal science where you like maybe 2x, right? And you like put a lot of work to 2x. I think AMMs were well in normal science era. I think like the basic thing works pretty damn well. And that's great. And I think that sort of will make it like 2x better. One or two of these things are gonna work and they're gonna work well. Somebody's gonna make a ton of money by making AMMs like 40% better. But my view is basically AMMs, like the 10x, 50x changes feel to me, they're there already. I hope I eat my words because that would be more interesting to see, but sort of my guess is like, it's like marginal 
two x kind of improvement. Not marginal, but like not revolutionary improvements at this point. Yeah. So on on that like uh, coincidence of coincidence of wants with the AMMs. Um, what we can do is just just do an order book. So we can do an order book. Solana's got order books on chain. DYDX is moving to their own chain where the matching engines are actually ran are by the validators. So I guess that's kind of like the middle ground where we have these things that AMMs don't really work with. And so we can just actually, we're starting to get the technology and we have got the technology now to actually do these order books. Um, so do you think order books have a much larger role to play compared to AMMs or are AMMs just going to stay as the like de facto way that people trade on on blockchains? Yeah, this is hard to say. I think like a cool thing AMMs do, which I think is like underappreciated a bit, is that AMMs in a sense um, ration order flow sort of proportionally rather than sort of like top order gets everything, right? This is kind of cool. Like the primitive is a curve rather than a step function. Like sort of if we put limit orders in a book, which is like I'm providing liquidity, I'm offering to buy a 10, you're offering to buy an 11, right? Like when a trade comes through, you get all of it and then before I get any, right? But take like Uniswap concentrated liquidity. Concentrated liquidity looks kind of like an order book, right? But I'm providing liquidity in a range from like 10 to 15. You're providing in a range from 13 to 17, right? There's a range where we kind of continuously provide liquidity. So the primitive is a curve rather than like a step function. That's kind of cool. Whether it'll survive the test of like market fit, who knows. But like, I think there've been some people in econ um, theory proposing that like, look, you really should be using curves as the primitives rather than step functions, right? I think the other thing to say here is basically that if you look at TradFi, I don't think that there's a winner takes all kind of market structure fight even in TradFi, right? The reductive description of TradFi is limit order books one. This is wrong. Like this is just wrong as a description of how TradFi works. Limit order books work for equities and like that's basically how equities are traded for retail somewhat, right? Even for equities, right? Um, dark pools abound, block trading, OTC for like large blocks of stuff, right? For fixed income, a lot of stuff is OTC with dealers. Um, there's requests for quotes mechanisms. There's like workup. There's all kinds of weird matching stuff. like. Market structure is pretty damn complicated in TradFi, right? And I think it's because like people are more familiar with the like retail kind of retail equities kind of things and very little else that people have this sense that limit order books one, right? But what TradFi I think also illustrates is that like it doesn't seem like there's an ideal market structure. The fact that so many things coexist suggests really that different market structures are better fits for different kinds of assets with different liquidity, volatility, sort of concentration kind of properties, right? So I kind of foresee there could very well be, just by analogy to TradFi, nothing deeper than that. Like there could be a multipolar kind of equilibrium in DeFi eventually also. So it's like eventually people will figure for different kinds of assets, different forms of liquidity provision makes sense, right? Will the AMM kind of like survive? That, who knows? Um, but I think that sort of, there's room for more than one winner in microstructure is kind of my view informed by like what I've seen in TradFi, yeah. Yeah. Um... So you've written about transaction size caps for DeFi to like minimize hacks. Um, bridge hacks like the most devastating. So like over a billion dollars has been stolen, I think, from memory just this year alone. Um, one idea is to introduce latency to the transaction size. So say you want to send $1,000 over a bridge, um, that might take on the order of minutes to seconds. But if you want to send $100 million over, that'll take on the order of hours. And then maybe that could go even go through manual review process or it gives the devs enough time to actually review that. Um, so consequently, like you're trying to minimize the size of the hacks. Um, how necessary do you think it's going to be to have certain mechanisms like this in place to minimize hacks? And do you have any suggestions as to what they could be? So I think like... I mean, I pretty much said this in the article. This seems like a kind of common sense thing to do. Like, it seems from a common sense perspective, like the property of a machine that you can trade a dollar as easily as you can trade a thousand dollars as easily as you can trade a million or a billion dollars. I don't think that's a good property. All of TradFi kind of figures this out. There's like differential levels of screens, kind of depending on how much money you want to trade, right? Differential levels of checks and stuff, like that's like in, 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 in some settings, right? This seems kind of common sense. I feel like there's then the question of why haven't people built it? There's like 
two theories, right? Two hypotheses. Hypothesis one is people haven't built it because it's really hard to build. I don't understand solidity. I haven't actually built any of this stuff. I don't buy that. This is not that hard to build. It costs some gas to like build this out, but it's not that hard to build, I think. The second hypothesis, which I think like makes more sense, is nobody has any incentive to build it, right? And I think like the problem with this is that there's a limited liability kind of issue here. And the limited liability is I think that sort of effectively project owners have equity. And the project owners thus have like the equity inherent like call option structure on their protocol, right? And what do I mean by that? If the protocol does very well, they keep the upside. If the protocol goes badly, um, they probably don't get anything, the protocol fails. But between the protocol doing badly and very badly, the founders don't lose anything other than reputation, right? And so I think yeah. that's like a classic problem, I think, in a lot of TradFi, which is basically equity holders have too high incentives to take risks and not enough incentive to invest in like the deep downside protection. Because like when a company blows up to the point that the equity is wiped out and it's the bondholders on the hook, why should the equity holders care anymore? It's the bondholders' money, right? And I think this really points to a fundamental moral hazard problem, which is basically, and like, by the way, like, this is like all theoretical and all, right? But if we translate that into human language, what are we really saying? We're saying like, look, you have two protocols, right? One of them is like, we're going to get the security right, right? And the other one is like, YOLO, 3-3, three, three, like, your size is not size. And the thing is like, which one's going to win out in the end, right? Nobody really gives a shit about security until shit blows up. Right. And sort of market forces generate high pressure to like growth hack and print money. Market forces do not generate high pressure to invest in security. Right. So I feel like this is not so much a technical problem as it is fundamentally an incentive problem. Sort of market forces push towards the stuff which takes the most degen bets. Exactly the same forces push against anyone who wastes like or like who spends VC money spend on boring shit like sort of transaction size caps. Right. What's the solution to that? I guess like there's two things. One is hope that sort of the aggregate degen hive mind becomes slightly less degen and pays more attention to security in the next cycle, right? Possible. We'll see whether that happens. The other solution, of course, I'll say like the forbidden word um, is regulation. Like sort of regulators could go in and say like, look, do whatever you want, but we're going to impose security standards because look, you guys have a strong incentive not to invest in security. And this is clear to anyone who looks at the incentives of people in the space, right? So I feel like this is really a case where I don't really see any good solution to this other than some form of regulators coming in. Or like, I don't know, I haven't thought about this that much, but like, it feels here like sort of the space, we've been in the space for a while. Does anyone like do meaningful of the like fast moving projects do like that meaningful investments in security i've seen maybe one or two teams like the market really is not selecting for it yeah yeah well like speaking of regulation it was a few days ago now that the bank of international settlements tweeted out about about mev and front running and uh sandwich attacks and that kind of stuff and they said that they're going to start putting their foot down and to do like regulation to you know legally pro I'd, I'd imagine legally prosecute people for you know, front running and censorship. So, um, like, it's going to be inevitable, likely, whether like regulation actually comes and does that, or these protocols actually like instantiate it themselves. Um, so, switching gears a bit, and we've talked a bit about DeFi, and a lot of these DeFi protocols have like governance, um, and to varying degrees of success, uh, very, very varying. Um, so, like, the most common mechanism that DAOs employ for governance is, like, direct, like, simple majority voting. So, the token holders get to vote, and whoever, uh, you know, the, the vote that gets the majority kind of wins. Um, you've written about, like, random subset majority voting as an alternative to simple majority voting. Um, like, can you explain the difference, and is it possible that you could apply that to a voting mechanism in DAO governance? Yeah, sure. So I'll explain a bit random subset voting. So random subset voting, I motivated with the following puzzle, right? So suppose that you live in, so suppose that you have a family of like five people, right? Suppose the five people basically take binary votes to figure out what restaurant they want to go to, right? Quickly, they're going to discover that there's like three restaurants they can go to. And the reason for this is basically that the outcome of a large number of people binary voting on any given choice has no noise, right? 
if nobody's tastes change over time, right, then any proposal either passes or does not pass, right? And this is just a property of the mechanism. When is this potentially not a good thing? If you are making a very frequent set of decisions, like a lot of small decisions, right? And then if you don't really mind screwing up on small, like one or two of the small decisions, but kind of you want to make sure you don't systematically miss um, a bunch of profitable opportunities, right? This may not be a good property. So what are some examples of this? Some, the classic example I was thinking of this is if you like are an art gallery, right? And then you basically want to like get a bunch of different kinds of art, right? And then sort of academic papers is actually kind of like this also. That was what motivated and inspired this, um, this, 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 this uh, paper, which is like in academic papers, we have like refereeing, which is like the field um, wants to decide what things to publish and what not to publish. Hiring might be another decision here, which is basically like, um, sort of, you have people, you want to decide who to hire, right? In these cases, like, you publish, like, one bad paper, or you reject one good paper, it's not a big deal, right? But you kind of don't want to make it so you're systematically excluding a segment of, like, good engineers, or a segment of good papers or good art or something, right? So the idea behind random subset voting is just inject some noise into the process. How? Instead of having everyone vote, just pick a random subset of people to vote. And then once you think about this, like this happens already, right? Our competitions are judged like by picking some random judges and having the random judges judge like at early stages, right? When you hire, the whole company doesn't vote who to hire. There's some randomness involved in basically you pick two interviewers and the interviewers interview the candidate. And if you think about my paper, in some sense, this is saying like, this is a good thing. If the entire company voted who to hire, like the biases of the company as a whole would be extremely salient in the hiring decisions, right? Um, people would either have a 100% chance of getting hired or 0% chance. There would be a large segment of people who have no chance of making it into the company, right? And then sort of an interesting sort of feature of the interview mechanism is it makes the outcome of hiring actually noisier, right? Sort of some people are going to have a lower chance of getting hired, but if they happen to run into the two people in the company who actually like them, they can actually get hired, right? So sort of random subset majority voting is a mechanism designed for a very specific kind of decision, the kind of decision that you do a lot of times and then you kind of don't want to make too carly mistakes. It's not a great mechanism necessarily for the kinds of canonical governance problems, which is high stakes, like, do we take this large directional pivot or not, right? But sort of, so that was an experiment, basically a short paper aimed at this question of if you want to like hire people, make a kind of decision like a lot of times, is there a way that you could, like, what's a way to do that, basically? Yeah. So do you think it's possible to implement that into DAO governance, or is that too much of, like, is that not a suited mechanism for such a thing? Partly because uh, it seems to be, I'm not, I'm not sure the implications of not letting a certain section of token holders vote. So, like, if it was all direct, they can all vote, and if it's representative, they can have delegates vote on their behalf. So what is the implication of not letting, only letting a certain subset vote and then discarding the rest. I mean, I think like the point behind the mechanism is it averages out over time, basically. So it works for cases where you make a bunch of decisions over time, like similar looking decisions, ideally, right? So say DAOs get big enough that they're hiring a lot of people, right? Like possibly you could use this and basically have like sort of certain subsets of token blocks responsible for voting on any given candidate, right? And you could use credibly randomized, uh, randomized like sort of allocation. And the thing is, like, if people have different voting blocks, you can just have, like, weighted sampling, um, sort of turning on or off a set of blocks proportional to the, the vote share of that block or something like that, right? So I feel like, sort of, I, I guess I stick to a bit, like, what I said, um, which is not a good fit for really big proposals, right? But if you think about interviews, like, you're not having the CEO insist that he gets a say in most companies on whether everyone gets hired, right? Like, everyone accepts that there's some level of randomness in the small decisions. And things are fair on average across a lot of hires, even though they're not necessarily fair on every given hire. Yeah. It so takes people like... effort also. I mean, it's a delegation process in a sense, right? Like if you think about even for slightly bigger decisions, right? How bad would it be if you basically delegated randomly certain proposals to certain blocks of tokens, right? There'd be coordination issues because I might vote in what I like on this branch, you on that branch, and then these two might co co conflict with each other. But it saves time because I can worry about one piece and you can worry about another piece, right? So I, I think like there's some potential that some kind of mechanism like this is sort of useful even for like um, sort of relatively bigger decisions. I mean, it points to like a fundamental issue with like 
the way governance is currently done, right? Everyone in the firm staring at everything is just a dumb way to do governance of any sort, right? And then people focus on basically like, I think too much attention, relatively speaking, is focused on, oh, if we voted a different way, we would totally solve this problem, right? That's not how this problem is solved in real life, right? How this problem is solved in real life, I'm not really a politics person, but my understanding is like Senate, like, forms subcommittees and says, you five people go figure out like how like water rights in Colorado work. You three people go figure out how wireless spectrum auctions in like Vermont work, right? And then sort of there's a lot of delegation and division of labor, right? And the thing is like expecting everyone in a company proportional vote shares to be informed about every issue that the company has to make is just a silly kind of proposal at some level, right? And expecting them to sort of be able to vote intelligently similarly, right? So I think that's sort of, and if you think in a company it's similar, right? Like the CEO like is a dictator. The CEO delegates authority for various branches of decisions to various parties who are able to make informed decisions, right? So I feel like brain share in governance space should pivot a bit away from this naive model of if only we did the right like weird ranked choice third candidate out voting, we would fix the problem to like look realistic structures involve like a lot of delegation, a lot of division of labor. How do we kind of get to that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that's a big problem. And it doesn't just extend to every all the token holders voting, but the like for the even the delegates to have informed knowledge, like to be informed about every single voting decision especially as these protocols get more complex, is going to be a big problem. And so I feel like the natural evolution of that is that you just have these specialized group of people, like you, like you said, like subcommittees, essentially, that have that specialized knowledge that do end up making the decisions, uh, which is kind of far, far and away from what we see in most governance mechanisms uh, now. Um, like your, edu- your educational background is in economics, um, given the intersection between crypto and economics, um, why does there seem to be like of academic research related to blockchains uh, with economics, especially when you compare it to the research done by computer scientists? So why isn't there? Is that the question? Yeah, not, why, yeah, why not is there not as much? Yeah. yeah. I think that there's a couple of reasons for this. I think that, so we're starting to have, I think, some good papers in the space. So in Booth, um, some of my colleagues, Eric Ludish and Jacob Leshno, have very good papers. Um, in finance, uh, Trubua uh, who's also from our department, has very good work. Simon Mayer, who is a postdoc, Quentin Vandewire, um, they all have some very good work. So we're starting to write some stuff. And there's other people at other schools. I'm just uh, showing my colleagues a bit. Um, I think that there's a couple reasons why. I think that. People disagree with my take. I think that economics is a bit structurally conservative with respect to new technology. So I think that we're a bit sort of on the, we tend to move a bit slowly just as a field culture matter. I think part of it is just like, that's how we work. Um, And I think the other part is that it turns out that in economics academia in particular, the way we have structured our publication system makes it actually very hard to write and publish on fast moving new topics. And that's basically like CS guys, if you talk to them, like a good CS person can publish maybe three or four, a good CS faculty can publish, I think at least four or five papers a year. Some of the good labs are pumping out like dozens a year, Um, one or two dozen maybe. Um, 1.5 a year is good productivity over in econ, maybe like two or two and a half in finance, right? It's just our papers are long, they take forever to publish. And the problem with that is that if your paper takes five years to publish, forget about writing about DeFi. By the time you've like published the paper, it's like ancient history, right? So I think it's a confluence of basically culture and the weird organizational structure of publishing in econ that makes it so it's like difficult for us to work on it. But I think like I'm hopeful that this will shift a bit as we move DeFi into the sort of five-year past window where it's safe to start writing about the old stuff. So you'll start to see embarrassingly sort of econ people like write about like ancient history DeFi. And then you should expect to see some of those papers soon, but you will see some of those papers soon. So I yeah. think, expect us to be five years behind, but we will come after five years, I think. Yeah. I just think it's, it's like especially important for like economists to be like writing like research like on blockchains, not just DeFi, but on blockchains themselves. Um, because arguably, like economic incentives and disincentives, are, like super important to the security of these things. 
So like uh, proof of stake, you like stake tokens for security and to provide services to the network. Economics, economic incentives, so like uh, block rewards, that's like inflation, um, transaction fees, and then disincentives, so like slashing and then like other penalties. So I think it's like where I feel like there's a lot to be gained um, by like economic research and it's it's a shame that uh, they, it takes so long and they're kind of behind. Um, so like I really look forward uh, to, seeing, to seeing more of that. Um, do you, are there any other... Are there any economic mechanisms in particular that you would like to see explored within DeFi or blockchains? Uh, yeah. Well, probably like there's one that I'm, this is like very much my personal bias, um, but I work with Glenn Weil on, um, so Glenn Weil has uh, some work on what he calls harbinger licenses. Alternatively, I think we screwed up the naming on this so badly. Because it goes under harbinger licenses, costs, salsa, depreciating licenses, among a million other mechanisms. But TLDR, it's a partial property rights mechanism where you can basically own, uh, the way I think about it is like, so say you own like a piece of land, right? You can own it under a perpetual license where you hold it forever, right? Or as is common in some places like China, you own a term limited license, which says you own this thing for 50 years, it goes back to the government thereafter, right? A lot of natural resources are allocated under term limited licenses, um, like um, radio spectrum, like fishing rights, stuff like that, right? So we propose a mechanism which you can think as like a mechanism that instead of saying you own it forever or you own it for two years and nothing thereafter, uh, ownership license that continuously decays over time. So basically you own like 100% of it this year, 90% next year, 80% next year, 70% the next year, and so on and so forth, exponentially decaying to zero. So there's a variety of ways that you can understand what this mechanism does, but basically we have a partial property rights mechanism that allows you to sort of have ownership decaying continuously over time. So from the start, we figure this is potentially a good fit for blockchain kind of applications, right? And then what might you use this for? You might use it for NFTs, right? You might have like basically when I own an NFT, like my stake decays from like 100 to 90% um, every year, right? You might use it for ENS. So Vitalik has written, I think, some posts about how this might be a good fit for ENS. So this is one of those things where it's like, I wish someone would build it. I'm totally happy to help someone out um, to the extent I can building it. Some people have tried, um, but like product market fit has not been super great yet. Yeah. So in the example of land, your ownership decays over time. Uh, so once it goes to zero, do you have to rebuy that ownership essentially? So the essentially? key is actually the way we structure it it decays 10% every year and you're forced to buy back that 10% every year. And so, okay, so the, yeah. the version of this mechanism, which um, is like, you may have heard, there's a self-assessed tax sort of related to this mechanism. The way it works is basically you can think of it as every year, if you want to keep using the land, you have to buy back from the government 10% of the use license. And the price of that 10% is determined in an auction. So every year, the owner and every possible buyer participate in an auction where they decide who gets the land. Right. The only difference is the owner starts with 90%. So if the owner wins the auction, the only owner only has to pay for the 10% that he doesn't already own. And if the owner loses the auction, then he gets paid by the buyer for the 90% he owns. So then sort of, it's all sort of consistent. You just run an auction every period, but you run an auction in which the current owner of the license, the previous owner, the incumbent owner, has comes in with 90% stake. Yeah. And so at so any period, um, you own... Like after the auction, one person will own 100% of the license, right? But they will have to have bought that 10% back. Yeah, so that's how that mechanism works. So it's a way for governments to kind of uh, collect revenue off of scarce resources. Yeah, yeah. Would that be right? Okay. Yeah. But an alternative to basically the extremes of selling a license once and for all and sort of short-term perpetual rentals where you sell for one year and sell for another one year and so on and so forth. You can sell something which like more smoothly kind of decays over time, which is some property rights, which are good because people like having the security of knowing they own something uh, long-term stake while also having the flexibility that it's easier to reallocate over time. So it's a, like, it really is just a mechanism to interpolate between perpetual property rights and very short-term property rights. Is there anywhere else other than China that this has been, this experiment has actually played out? Oh, the, the, the depreciating license yeah. kind of experiment. So in Taiwan, they tried this a bit well before we wrote this paper. In China, they actually haven't done this. 
Um, there have been mechanisms that kind of look like that, but I wouldn't say there's a high-profile mechanism that uses this uh, application that uses this mechanism. So I'm still hopeful, but nothing yet. Yeah. So it's largely unexplored for the most part. In terms, yeah. Explored in toy applications, but not in any very high-stakes setting yet. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, to, to somewhat finish off, um, are there any words of wisdom that you'd like to, to share, um, whether that's for teenagers or young adults looking to get into crypto, finance or economics, or just some general wisdom that you wish you'd uh, had known earlier? That is a very hard question. Um, I guess uh, off the top of my head, maybe what I would say is that you kind of have the choice. I think crypto to me, I think I found to be a very exciting and interesting and sort of when I saw it, I kind of had the feeling like I did not want to miss this because it really feels like history is kind of happening before my eyes, right? It's happening in such a like blindingly fast pace that you feel like you blink and you miss it, right? And then so I feel like sort of I'm not entirely sure career, academic career wise, whether this is the optimal path, but for me, it's like sort of the point of getting here was not to miss a piece of history. Right. And so I feel like sort of for the kids thinking, like, I feel like I run into a bunch of students who are like, Oh, I cut like, this is super cool, but I kind of also want to go work for like, sort of, uh, sort of big bank, like making PowerPoint slides for like 60 hours a week. I joke a bit, but like sort of, I don't want to give too much advice because like, look, there is some risk involved in here, but I feel like for me, I've kind of played it sort of both ways a bit where I have one leg in TradFi and one leg in DeFi, but I'm really happy so far that I've had that one leg in DeFi, if only for the fact that this has been super damn cool and sort of there's like so many stories to tell and so many interesting people I've met and so much I've really, I think, learned and understood more about like finance and about sort of social science in general, just from watching this space. So I feel like sort of a lot of people got really rich here also. Um, so that's another benefit. You could get very rich, but I think that sort of, for me, the main payoff was really like, like I learned a ton and it was a super cool experience. And so I think like for me, like the space, that's kind of what that meant to me. So yeah, I guess I'll leave it at that. So it's like experience and opportunity. That's what it boils yeah. down to, essentially. All right, I think we can. I think we can finish off there. Like, thank you so much for for coming on, um, and thanks for everyone to list for listening. Um, we'll see you next time. Thank you.